And Jesus comes to us, the untouchables, and says, I want to talk to you. And he's not there to teach in a, I have all the answers. In fact, the amount of questions he asks is far greater than the amount of answers he gives. Hello and welcome to Avenger Bros, your weekly podcast about biblical literacy, discipleship, and historical slash cultural context. I'm your host for the week, George Benson, and as you know, our co-host Don is on sabbatical, so we wish him well and everything that goes with that. But today, I'm very excited to talk with our special guest. Um, she does a lot of work on decolonizing or decolonizing faith, deconstruction. Um, and she's also featured on our Bible app. She just had a devotional there. So if you go check that out, uh, you're going to be better for it. Um, so I would like to introduce to those of you who don't know who she is, Joe Lumen. Good morning. Thank you for having me here. I'm very excited. Well, thank you for taking the time to talk to us. Go ahead. <laughs> um, <laughs> Sorry. No, I wasn't going to say anything. I wondered if you wanted to like ask me a question and then I'll answer if you want me to share a little bit about what I do. Yeah. Um, so um, for, for those of you or for those who are listening that don't know who you are, um, why don't you just give a, as long of a, a background introduction as, as you'd like to, you know, kind of where you're from, what you do, what, what led you to what you're currently doing. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I'm from Colombia. I was born and raised in Colombia, the country. Um, I moved to the U.S. to do an internship at a church and to go to school. Um, I did a two-year internship, at, like two years at, at a church in Las Vegas, and I worked there. I was hired too as a um, administrative assistant for the community pastor. Um, so we were doing a lot of community outreach work, and um, that was interesting in Las Vegas too. And then, <laughs> and then some of the pastors there were moving to San Diego to start a church here. And I, um, my plan was to go to San Francisco to study, but you know, I, I felt like I had to come here and they felt like I had to come here. So I ended up in San Diego, um, helping them plant this church. And at the same time, I was going to Point Loma Nazarene University to get my master's degree. And, um, it was, a it was, 10 years of just working inside of the church, that church and then another one here in San Diego, um, just involved in every possible aspect of the church, doing anything and everything that needed to be done. Because that's how kind of church planting goes. Um, and through that and through going to school, I started learning a lot and asking a lot of questions and getting real uncomfortable with the way in which we expressed our faith. Um, and unfortunately those questions weren't met with openness. Um, so we, I, we just knew we have to go, like, it's just time to go and continue to ask the questions. So we went to San Francisco, we went to Turkey, uh, we went to San Francisco to meet with, uh, there is a network of home churches in San Francisco and we went up there and we met with people. We spent some time there. We asked all the questions. We wanted to see what they were doing because our, Everything that we were talking through was if the church is not a place where people are real, are finding real community, 
and where they are finding real deep, uh, intimate, you know, relationships, then this is just the club that you come every week to and check the boxes off. And that's not what we want to be a part of. So we saw in San Francisco, we loved some of the things that we're doing up there, hated some of the things that we're doing up there, went to Turkey um, to see a church in Turkey. It's an underground church in Turkey um, and ended up falling in love with the Muslim people. And um, the Muslim, we didn't get super in depth with the Muslim faith, but just the way in which they practice their faith and how they were so intentional um, about their faith being their life every day, all the time, everything that they do, um, the way in which they treated us, you know, my, when I say us, I mean my husband, my children and I, we were all there. Uh, and they knew we were pastors from a Christian church in, or from Christianity in America or the U.S. Uh, and they treated us with so much kindness and love. And there was no intent in making us Muslim. They, it was just, we bless you because that's part of our faith. Like we treat you the way we treat you because that's how our faith, hospitality is a big deal for our faith. Um, so that challenged a lot of our own, you know, that's not how the U S church treats Muslims. Like if, if you see an Imam in the U S with his family, um, he's not going to be treated the way that we were treated. Like I'm talking meals were paid for us. We were in a Greek Island. This, this was very ridiculous. We were in a Greek island and for some absurd reason, we didn't bring our cards. Like we didn't have credit cards, we didn't have anything. The only thing we had was Turkish lira. Well, in Greek, they don't, in Greece, they don't take Turkish lira. So I, for, I don't know why I had $20 in my purse and my husband had a whole bunch of Turkish lira and we were with our children in a Greek island. So this Turkish man saw us and came up and asked us, like, are you okay? Are you lost? We were like, no, we're not lost. We um, just have no money. Like, <laughs> I don't know why we have no money. And he's like, well, I have a bus of Turkish people and we have some room. Um, like, come with us. Come along. So the whole day we spent with a bus of Turkish people. They paid for everything. They... They paid for food. My my son gets car sick. He ended up throwing up and they were buying us water. They bought him a t-shirt. Like this absolute commitment to making sure we were okay. And there was no money exchange. There was, they knew we didn't have any money. And, and this is just one example of many where we were treated with such kindness and love and care. And so we come back to the US and we're going, we went back to church and it just felt, we felt so out of place we just wanted we wanted our faith to be like that too you know we wanted to care we wanted to build community and to create these spaces where people are loved well and in that process I started I had deconstructed a lot of my faith by then um, but I hadn't decolonized so that started my decolonizing you know I started learning about different faiths and that included the faith of my ancestors which are the Chipcha people in Colombia and the amount of similarities I found with Christianity not the expression of Christianity in the West but Christianity what is what we see in the Bible what we hear historically about you know the the early church uh, the amount of similarities I found with that faith and the faith of the Chipcha people and then the faith of the Mayans and the Incas and the many people in the Americas, 
I was shocked, you know, many, many similar beliefs and many similar ideas, different names, of course, but many similar ideas. And I kept thinking, we, as, as a people, as a humanity, we've been searching for answers together. Um, and what keeps us apart and what keeps us fighting is that we keep demanding that our answers be the true answers, but all of us have the right answers for us. Um, so I... So I call decolonizing this, what I call decolonizing, how I define decolonizing faith, specifically decolonizing faith, is divesting, making sure that your faith expression has divested from systems of oppression, from white, what, what we call now. Systems of oppression have existed for always, but for the purpose of right now, it's white supremacy, patriarchy, and capitalism. Um, so that's the work that I do now. Uh, I create online, mostly online communities, where we talk about, where it's safe, where we come up and show up for one another, and where we divest from systems of oppression, especially for those who have been um, abused by the, the colonized church, the church married to systems of oppression. So that's a long answer, but that's about it, including a story on Turkey. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's great. Uh, oh, you just threw out so much good stuff that I want to ask you about. So um, so you went from working in a normal organized church in Las Vegas to doing a church plant in San Diego. Um, and now you, if I remember correctly, you're doing a home style church, like living room church, I think yeah. it's called something like that. Yeah, we call it the living room. Um, and we, the only reason we don't call it a church is because we, you know, that, that word has so many triggers for people. So um, but it's it's that it's the living room. It's a place where we discuss theology and we discuss spirituality um, in our living room. That's why it's called the living room. And the intent is that people will be able to do that in their own living rooms too. So, so that's the goal. Got it. So I'm uh, so I'm an outreach director for for a church in in town. And so one of the questions that in I, I just comes to mind with that is how is that how how is that going in the age of COVID that we now find ourselves with social distancing how has um decolonizing and working towards fighting systems of oppression within the structural capital c church um been affected with what you've been doing with the living room at, where we currently find ourselves if that makes any sense yeah well we meet still online um and we check on like with the people that come physically to our or used to come physically to our living room we check on them and you know we're still in relationship that's where we're, we're friends you know we're sending them food and talking and checking on each other uh, but the most important thing for us was to show up for our community like the most marginalized in our community and um obviously we can't do much we're small and we don't have a lot of income like you know, people are throwing money at a living room. Um, but we are, we, we do partner with a community in Tijuana. Um, and showing up for them has meant everything. Like, what do you need? And how can we be here? And what is, you know, what that looks like? Um, because their needs are different than our needs. So that we do in conjunction with other, with another organization that is part of what my dad does. Um, and right now their main need because all of their children are going to school, uh, virtually is internet. They don't have internet. So they use their hots, their phones as hotspots. They don't have, which means it's a lot of money for them. And then they don't have their phones for the whole morning. Um, so we've been working on getting them. This is a makeshift neighborhood. Like it's not, um, official. They take, um, electricity. They, it's not official. Like their homes are made. Last year, we were able to put flooring on some of their homes, and we've been working on getting more official um, 
services from the city. And so meeting them was more important than anything else. Um, so everything we started doing started focusing on, okay, how, how can we make sure that we're meeting them? And then for the people that we know here in San Diego that come to the living room and are, have a lot more privilege than the people that from the community in TJ, um, we were checking on each other. You know, how we still are. Like, we check on each other. How are you doing? How are things? Do you need anything? Um, so kind of meeting one another. And so in times of crisis, having a church that is very deconstructed like we don't have a building we don't have any you know like our all the money that comes in goes out that's the that's the deal we don't have any staff um none of it uh it's actually a lot of it's very helpful because then you get to show up because it's a time of crisis it's when you need community and when you need people so all of the details of how are we going to keep running the, the business part uh we don't have any of that we don't have to worry about any of that um, so we're able to say, okay, it's a time of crisis. We get to show up. We get to actually actively show up. Yeah. Um, and that has been good. I mean, that's what we wanted to do. Uh, yeah. I'm, so you're talking about this. And one of the things that I'm thinking of is something we talk on, on the show about is how we tend to make the physicality of the church or our faith into spiritual parts that are just now far off and all about what happens after you die and we ignore the communal aspects of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm listening to you talk about this. I'm thinking about your interaction that you had in Turkey or I'm sorry, when you were in Greece with people who were from Turkey and everything and how that, <laughs> and how that kind of fills out and, and uh, sounds like it really affected how you do church now or not. I'm sorry. I keep saying church for lack of a better term, but yeah, it's a, it's a, I mean, to me, church is community, you know, um, so yeah, it is church and it did, I mean, going to Turkey affected a lot of how we wanted to have our expression of church be, um, because uh, that's what they do. Um, they show up for their neighbors. So Muslim people show up for their neighbors. That's, it's important to them. Um, so in the house that we were staying in Turkey, they, that was the house, we were staying in the house of a Christian woman and she was the only Christian in the whole entire neighborhood. And she knew all of her neighbors. They were all friends when she, she's single. And when she's sick, it is her Muslim neighbors who bring something for her. They care for her. Um, she has a Sunday night uh, movie night. So they get together and watch movies in her house because she can get them from America. She gets all these extra movies that they don't get there. And so they get together every Sunday night, all her neighbors and have dinner and they all bring food. Everybody brings something, which the food was magnificent. And then they watch this movie and they hang out and they chat and they are not, they don't share the, the same faith. So this idea, which is a misrepresentation and a complete, in, in my opinion, misinterpretation of verses of uh, being unequally yoked, meaning you don't engage, you don't build close relationships with people that are not from your safe faith. That is not how they live out there. It's quite the opposite. It's the other way around. It's, I am close to you because you're my actual literal neighbor and I let you care for me and I care for you. Not because we share the same exact literal beliefs, but because we are two humans who live next to each other and care. And, and that's what we wanted to, that's how we wanted to live, you know? Yeah, I definitely get that. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's one of those things that, you know, it, it seems like it's a struggle to try and get started doing, but it's such a simple idea that we overthink it because we've yeah. been taught to do that because of what we've been experiencing in our church as air quotes community. 
Right. And I mean, to be honest, most of the community that I have experienced inside of churches is shallow. Um, everybody is trying to look a certain way. Everybody's trying to check the right boxes. Um, and if you cannot show up it, honestly how you are without editing yourself, then you don't have real community because they don't know you and nobody knows you. Um, nobody, you cannot even answer the, Hey, are you okay? You cannot even say like, you know what? I don't even know if I believe in God anymore. If your community um, doesn't allow for questions, if your community doesn't allow for your struggle, um, if you cannot show up at your community and say, you know what? I think I want a divorce and people don't rush to say no, divorce is bad, but instead ask, Hey, what's going on? Like, if that's what you need, how can we support you? Then you don't have a community. You have have a club where to belong, you have to behave. It, it was important for me to be able to have um, to have community where I could show up as myself because I had been asking so many questions and the questions had been met with so much no, you know, those questions are not allowed and doubt um, because questions are so, it are met often and doubt is met often with pushback. Uh, it's, it's just not allowed to have questions. It's not allowed to have doubt. Uh, then I felt like I wasn't allowed to show up as myself, especially at the, at the end when we were questioning, like, should we stay? Should we take jobs at churches or should we just be done? And I kept the, the last job interview that we had. Um, I said, can we meet? Can we have dinner? And can I ask a few questions? And so we did that. We, we met and I was asking all these questions and the, the, the people that were there were visibly uncomfortable with all the questions that I was asking. Um, and so we knew this wasn't, this wasn't going to be like, you know, this was going to be our job life, me asking a lot of questions, my husband asking a lot of questions and them feeling uncomfortable that I was asking them. So in a, in a real community that is not shallow, um, you can be yourself and you can have all the questions and you cannot land. You don't have to land theologically in the exact same places that your pastor has landed theologically. There is room for you to be able to draw your own conclusions and to land where you land. Um, so that was important to me. See, and seeing that in Turkey was beautiful. That it was not about who's right theologically. It was about how can we love you? You know, the, the right question was not what do you believe, but how can we love you? And that mattered to me. And that still matters to me. I don't care so much about what people believe, so long as their beliefs are not harming anybody. What I care about is, are you okay? Are you healthy? How can you be more whole and, you know, closer what I, to what I call um, your divinity within? Yeah. So, you know, you're, you're talking about, uh, it sounds like deconstruction and asking questions and everything and how in a real community that wouldn't matter because you're loved for who you are, not for what you bring to the theological table. Mm -hmm. And that those questions should be allowed. And when you were talking about that, I was thinking, I can't remember if I heard it on a podcast that you're on or in one of your writings, but you talk about how um, the idea of gate holding from the, from the pulpit is, uh, or is colonization in action and oppression yeah. and empire. And I'm, I'm wondering, could you talk a little bit about kind of what led you more towards that? Like, I, I, I know some of these questions help take you to this focus on decolonization of faith. Yeah. Um, and I'm just curious you know, if you could talk about that. Yeah. Um, there is, I don't believe that the goal of our faith, um, this Christian faith is to get people to say Jesus or raise their hand at a church and 
then everything will be fine. You know, that's, if that were the goal of the faith, then we, we have a very, very shallow and kind of sad faith. Um, and, I, and I don't think anybody would even agree that that's the goal of the faith. You know, like, I don't think anybody would look at you and be like, the goal is that people say Jesus and raise their hand at the end of a service. Um, however, that is how the expression of the faith ends up being all the time. So people go on mission trips and people uh, invite their friends to church. And the goal is, I really do hope they get saved. And by that, they mean, I hope they raise their hand at the end of the service. When that's really not what you, like, that doesn't mean they know God. That doesn't mean they know anything. So I believe that the goal is wholeness and healing, um, you know, of any faith, of spirituality. I believe if your spirituality is not leading you to wholeness and healing, then it's not a spirituality worth having. Um, that means that we have to be open to the idea that some people will not find wholeness and healing inside of Christianity. And the moment that you say, no, I am the arbiter and holder of wholeness and healing, it's the moment that you're putting yourself in the position of God, that you're saying people have to meet God in the way that I say, or people have to meet wholeness and goodness and healing and divinity, what I call divinity, in the ways that I say and in the boxes that I've created, or they haven't met the real one. And that to me is the epitome of arrogance, which is I am God and I know better what wholeness and healing and the journey towards yourself looks like. Oh, yeah. Active paternalism is something that, especially in the white evangelical church, we struggle with because it's it, it's exactly what you said. If you don't do it in the specific way that I have set forth, if you don't say this prayer, if you don't follow X, Y, and Z, you're not going to get the big prize in the sky after you die. Right. And if you're putting yourself, because see, I, I tell people all the time, when they tell me you're not a Christian, I say, well, I, I forgot that my relationship with divinity was between you, God, and me. I didn't know that. Um, and uh, I don't love sarcasm, but sometimes it's important. Because um, this is the thing. People's relationship with divinity is theirs. We don't get to insert ourselves into that. Um, we don't get to just say, well, I, not even my children. I don't insert myself into my relationship, into their relationship with divinity. Um, you know, they ask me questions and I answer their questions, but I mostly ask them, what do you think? And, you know, how do, how do you feel? How do you engage these ideas and these notions? We've talked about heaven and hell with them um, because somebody died and they had questions about what happens after you die. And I asked them, what do you think happens? And um, children are magnificent and wis like their wisdom is unparalleled, really. And, and they had in incredible insight into what happens. And I didn't insert myself and go, well, that's not actually what happens because this is the truth. If we cannot look especially on things that are unknown to humans. If we cannot just look at anybody and say, we don't know, and that's okay, and I don't know, this is what I believe, and this, is, this belief serves me, um, but I don't have the finality on what happens after we die, because the truth is we don't. Um, you know, we don't have a finality on what God is, and what God looks like, and, what, and how God engages with the world, how divinity engages with the world. We don't. We, we really don't have the finality on that. Um, we can say how divinity engages with me. I can tell you that, and how I see divinity throughout history and throughout the world and throughout the universe. Um, but if there is no room for you to be able to say, I don't know, um, you know, this is, this is just me, but what about you? And there is not more... Um, this desire to to learn about the other so if this is what i've learned if we believe and i do um that we are all created in the image of god and the ramifications of that um 
you know, and to me, the ramifications of that are every single person has God within them. They do. Uh, then that means that I have to engage them in such a way. And, I, and Jesus talks about this, right? Um, the way that you treat the least of these is the way that you treat me. And I think he's talking about um, not only literally marginalized people in society, but he's talking about the least of these in my head. However, whatever that means, like the least of these that I, the, the one that I see as less than me. So he's, he's asking us also to engage that part of our biases. Um, so however you treat the least of these, those that I think that need me, how do I engage them? Do I engage them with curiosity and with the desire of, I want to learn the divine in you? Because if divinity is huge, you know, omnipresent, omnipotent, all good, everywhere, in everything, then when I engage another, I'm learning a part of divinity that I don't hold, that I don't have. And when I engage them and see the divinity in them, I'm learning more about the divine. I'm learning more about God because I am not coming at them as a colonizer to say, I hold divinity, I have divinity, and I'm going to tell you, I'm coming at them with curiosity, like the native people came and say, show me you. I want to learn. Show me you. If you read the journals from the uh, colonizers, the way in which indigenous people were coming, a lot, not all of them, but a lot of the, the indigenous people were coming to the colonizers, it was with curiosity. Uh, the colonizers understood that to mean, oh, they think we're gods. They didn't think they were gods. They were curious about them because they were different. Can we engage one another with curiosity, believing that there is something that you have that I can learn from? Um, I have no doubt that I could grow from you and not come every time thinking there is something that I have that you need. Because that's not true, you know? That's, that's not true. It could be true, but that's, if I come to people thinking, oh, what I have is what you need, then our relationship already is not, I am coming to serve you and love you and learn from you. Our relationship is already, I am better than you, and yeah. I am coming to colonize you. Yeah, I mean, and it's not even a relationship. It's a sales pitch. No, Exa exactly. That's exactly what it is. That's exactly what it is. And, and it, it remains that way, even if I get them to buy in, you know, because uh, if you manipulate people enough and depending on power um, dynamics, I can get somebody to just get saved and become a Christian. Um, and I get saved was in quotations. People can't see my quotation marks. Um, so if I get them to do that, even the, the relationship continues to be dependent because you continue to depend on me to be able to have a relationship with divinity. And if I create such a system where people are dependent on another to come to divinity, what I have created already is a mini God between full divinity and people. Um, a, a, a God in between them that people have to go through to be able to have access. That's the problem I have with hierarchical churches. Um, in hierarchical churches, whether you like it or not, whether that was your intent or not, you have created a system where, where you have put, like the pastors or leadership, have put themselves between God and the people. And that's colonized Christianity. Um, in decolonized Christianity, you there is no hierarchies. Everybody has access to God. Everybody has, which is what Jesus was pushing, you know, is what Jesus was inviting people to. He was saying, stop gatekeeping God. Stop thinking that the way, the, the traditional ways in which the rabbis had um, 
kind of cornered everybody into saying, these are the ways in which we practice our faith. And he kept challenging those and saying, well, not really. And let me talk to the fishermen and let me talk to the tax collectors and let me talk to the prostitutes, which some of them weren't even prostitutes, but they've told us they were. Uh, and let me talk to the, the ones that they're untouchables. I like to call people the untouchables because I'm an untouchable inside of the evangelical church. People should not touch me, engage with my content, talk to me. And Jesus comes to us, the untouchables, and says, I want to talk to you. And he's not there to teach in a, I have all the answers. In fact, the amount of questions he asks is far greater than the amount of answers he gives. Uh, because the intent was to help them engage God and divinity by themselves. So I'm going to ask you a lot of questions so that you recognize that there are, there are answers within you. Um, and if our faith expression doesn't allow for people to do that, like you have answers within you and the divinity is within you, but instead is come to me and I'll give you the answers. Then you put God in a box um, and you dispense it at your convenience. That's, that's colonized Christianity, using God to oppress people. Uh, I, I know that that's not the intent, but that's definitely the impact. Um, this is God. This is where it fits. And I need you to fit into that box too, if you want access to God. And in the meantime, we have a God and a divinity that transcends Christianity, that transcends, you know, the world, really. Yeah, you're talking about this, and um, one of the things that comes to mind is Gamaliel in Acts 5 talking about if this is from God, we're not going to stand in front of it because you've got this new expression of faith that breaks from the tradition, which isn't bad. It's it's a good thing. God is outpouring God's self into people, and people are right. recognizing it. And right. so how how do you become comfortable being uncomfortable saying – you know, even the people that claim, you know, you shouldn't put God in a box as soon as it's out of their version of what that box is. Yeah. Don't know what to do with it. Comfortable. I know. I mean, we've, it's been 2000, not really, but it's been about 1700 years of telling people God is in this box. You know, God is in this box. Now I, I should say it's 1700 years of the elites saying that. Because at the same time, the whole time, there were people pushing against it. I, I don't mean to interrupt your, your thought process, but just for clarification, when you say elite, yeah. what do you mean by elite? Because well, I want to make sure I'm on elite, the same page. Especially in the early, you know, first in the 300s, when I talk about the elite, I'm talking about the theologians that were sitting down in councils um, discussing what is true and what is not true. The people it that happened started, again. Hmm? Sorry, was the people that started to marry themselves to Rome when Rome adopted Christianity. Absolutely. Um, so as soon as they married themselves with power, as soon as the goal was to hold, like, you know, we were going to get power. And this came all out of fear. And you can, you know, like they had been persecuted in horrific ways. Um, and so out of fear, they are like, well, we're not going to be persecuted if we get close to Rome. And to get close to Rome, you have to make a lot of concessions. Uh, and, and by Rome, I mean power, because that's the same thing that is happening to the Western church right now. Oh, absolutely. Um, to be able to be safe, to be able to protect the things that we think are not protected right now, uh, we have to make a lot of concessions and we have to betray ourselves, really, and betray. It's really interesting to me, evangelicals and fundamentalists and a lot of people um, talk about how the, the Bible is the word of God, but they don't live it out, you know? 
those of us who are on the fringes and those of us who've been screaming and they are the untouchables are more committed to the things that are in it than those who are in. Um, so I, it, it, I just I don't comprehend it, you know, because it's this marriage. So we're going to make concessions and you end up being hypocritical if oh, you make yeah. concessions and you marry Rome. Oh, for sure. I mean, that's one of the things, you know, I know um, it's one of the things we spend so much time talking about the reason why biblical literacy is important, but not the mm -hmm. end all be all is so we actually understand what we're talking about. We hear the text and how we imagine the first century people would have heard it so we can live out this communal faith and actually take our convictions more seriously in a way that isn't reflected, but claims to be reflected today. Right, right. Um, a lot of people that, get, that are uncomfortable with the things that I say, um, they don't read. I mean, I don't know what the statistic is now, but the amount of people that go to church and don't read the Bible is really high. Um, because they, they, the goal is not to have divinity with you. The goal is not wholeness and healing. The goal is to belong. And to belong, which is the goal of all humanity. You know, all of us want to belong. Belonging is um, a basic human need. But to belong means you agree. Um, to belong inside of the colonized church, it means you agree, um, you say yes, or you get ostracized and you stop belonging. And the fear to stop belonging makes you betray yourself enough to belong. Um, so it's, it's, it's a perfect system <laughs> to be able to oppress people. And, and, you know, and I know, I, I, really, I really do know that the intent is not to oppress, but it becomes oppressive the moment that you dangle belonging um, and then people have to betray themselves to be able to belong. Uh, a community that is safe, a community that is, um, you know, that is really going to help you move towards wholeness and healing is a community where belonging is just a given. You belong because you belong. You belong because you exist. And where the most important goal is that you learn to belong to yourself first, because it doesn't matter where you belong second if where you belong first is not yourself because then everything you're doing is to be able to belong to others because you don't belong to yourself at all, which is the invitation of, to me, is the invitation of unearthing divinity within you, of listening to the Holy Spirit and not betraying the Holy Spirit anymore in, and, you know, doing the things that you have to do because this is what you know you have to do and not because of all the trauma and all the pain and all the hidden motivations um, that are, I do all of these things because if I don't do them, then I, then I'm not accepted, then I, you know, all of these other ramifications of things happen. Uh, if you don't feel safe enough to be yourself and every day and every Sunday, you are thinking through what can I not say and when I, what can I not do, what is not okay, um, so that I can continue to belong, then you're dealing with colonized faith. Your faith is colonized and you are colonizing yourself in a way um, and betraying yourself in order to be able to belong and exist, you know, and breathe. Um, yeah. that is coping. It's called religious coping. Um, yeah. but your faith is, so when people say, well, Christianity, especially converts, when they say Christianity saved me, it's so good for me. Uh, what I've learned is that what they did was change coping mechanisms. So they had unhealthy coping mechanisms, um, namely addictions or, you know, bad relationship habits or whatever. And then they come to Christianity and what happens is that they start coping through religion. Uh, which is a more acceptable coping mechanism, but can be just as harmful uh, if you're not actually healing. Because the goal is healing, not Christianity. 
And that's the problem. We've made the goal Christianity. You become a good, and by Christianity, I mean colonized Christianity. The goal is that you become a Christian, a good Christian, that you do all the things that good Christians are supposed to do. But the yeah. goal should be that you're whole and healed. And whatever that means for your journey, wherever you land in that journey is good. Because you're whole. Yeah, I mean, you're talking about... <laughs> You're talking about all this, and one of the things that comes to mind that's so popular, at least in the evangelical churches I've worked for in the past, is we love to say that you know faith is a journey, but the problem is we all have a specific litmus test for where the journey is, and it begins, yeah. where it ends, and how you need to look along the way instead of right. opening up our arms and saying, you're welcome as you are. Right. Yeah. It's, a, it's, a, it's a journey through Ikea. Yeah. You know, have you been to Ikea? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right? We've all been to Ikea. Um, Ikea has arrows on the floor and tells you where you have to go. So you do get to see a lot, but it's you don't get to go behind the scenes. You don't get to out of Ikea. You don't, you know, it's like, these are the arrows. This is where you follow. And that's not a journey. That's not a journey. Um, a, a journey, an adventure is you get to step out and you get to go into the wilderness uh, because it's truly actually in the wilderness. And I, I, I don't, I mean, people think that I'm not a Christian really, but I, I, I love the Bible. I really do. I love the stories in there. Um, not as the word of God, just as this ancient collection of books of people that were trying to walk out their own wholeness and healing. Um, so you see Jesus walking into the wilderness before he ever does anything. Um, and this walk out into the wilderness is the place where we find ourselves. Because like I said, if you don't belong to yourself first, if you are not willing or free enough to walk out into the wilderness out of fear of whatever that means for your safety, for your belonging, for all of it, then you're not really free at all. And it wasn't until I was willing to walk out into the wilderness, which means... I you know, my husband and I, we quit our jobs and in quitting our jobs, unfortunately, that meant we lost our relationships, all of them. Um, not all of them. There were three people that kept talking to us. Um, so it was 10 years of relationships gone, just completely gone. Uh, it was a career gone because nobody was going to hire us, especially after I started being more vocal about the things that I was learning. We knew, you know, and I, the question was all the time, like, am I going to betray myself or am I going to choose safety? Am I going to betray myself? You know, am I going to choose safety or am I going to go into the wilderness and find myself? And I kept, and this is, that's why I say healing is a privilege because it was a privilege that I could say, I'm going to choose healing. Uh, because for some, it, you just don't feel ever, you don't ever feel safe enough to be able to choose the wilderness. And that's fine. And that's, I understand that, you know, that doesn't mean you have to force it. You don't force anything. You can find little bits of, of, of wilderness in the middle of Ikea. You can. Uh, it's true. Yeah. And that's sometimes for some of us, that's the beginning. You know, I find a little bit of wilderness inside of Ikea because that's how I feel safe because I don't feel safe enough to just literally step out of Ikea and go wherever the hell I want. Um, so for, for me, it wasn't until I was able to say, I will not betray myself one more day and I will walk out into the wilderness. And if I don't find anybody out there, then I'll be alone for the rest of my life, but I will be with me. I, I'll have God I'll have divinity and I'll have me and I will not betray myself. And that will be enough. It wasn't until I was willing to do that and put everything out there and say, this is who I am. Uh, and if you don't like it, you don't have to be around me anymore, really. But I will not do things to, to make you comfortable. 
and at the at the expense of me, at, at the expense of my wholeness, at the expense of my well-being, I won't do that anymore. So I did. I went out into the wilderness and I really thought, and that's when I started my Instagram account and decided to say the things that I wanted to say. Uh, and the Instagram account is, if you, cause I didn't, I don't delete anything. So if you go all the way down, it's actually really acceptable at the beginning. I was just going through the book of Genesis and I was doing things, saying things that were not too uncomfortable, but as, as I kept getting more comfortable stepping out into the wilderness, because it takes your body because of trauma, it takes your body a while to get comfortable. As I kept getting more comfortable, I was able to get bolder and step further out into the wilderness, a step further out into, if I'm not accepted, then I'm not accepted. And for about two years, my account had 200 people and mostly people fighting me, being like, you are ridiculous. But I couldn't betray myself anymore. And then I started finding the people that Brené Brown talks about this and she's in Braving the Wilderness. She says something to the effect of, um, when you walk out into the wilderness, not only do you find yourself, but you find your people. And I have. Um, not only did I find myself, and have I been finding myself, because that's a journey to, in itself, finding yourself. Um, but I've been able to find my people too. The people that I didn't know existed. You know, these, the, the church, what I call the church. This community of people that are, some are Christians, some are atheists, some are agnostics, some don't even know. Uh, that look at me and say, you're my people. And I look at them and I say, you're my people too. And to me, that's the church. To be yeah. able to say, I do not care where you are at theologically. What I do care about is that you're whole and healed and well. And I want to be a part of that journey for you too. I want to watch it and I want to be a witness to it and cheer, cheer you on. Um, yeah. Even if you end up landing in a place where I'm uncomfortable. I still cheer you on because it's about you, not about me. Your journey has to be about you, yeah. not about anybody else. Yeah. And I, I, yes, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we're, we're getting close to, to time here and I'd like to, I'm, I'm kind of putting you on the spot and I apologize for this, but so for people who are just now starting to learn about decolonization of faith, are there like five or a couple practical steps that if we're listening to this for the first time, questions we can ask ourselves, uh, because unfortunately not everybody is comfortable or is in a safe space where they can move out into the wilderness. And with everything going on in the world right now, um, that's not the highest of priorities. Absolutely. So yeah. what can we do uh, to move forward with decolonization after deconstruction? Or if we're starting to look at that, what are some questions we can be asking ourselves or some practical steps? Um, one of the most, I call this a spiritual practice, but one of the most, um, helpful spiritual practices that I, um, kind of, I used to do this when I was in the evangelical church, but this changed a lot after the wilderness was, um, journaling and journaling was not this, like I read the Bible and then I write what I thought about the, what I read. It's, it's not that, but it's, uh, the practice of learning to listen to myself. So I pay a lot of attention to what's going on within me. I pay a lot of attention to me being uncomfortable. So if somebody says something and it's very uncomfortable, I don't react. I used to, but I don't react anymore. Um, instead, I sit down with that and I journal through it. And I say, okay, what is it? Why am I uncomfortable with that? Why does it make me uncomfortable? And I read this book that talked about asking why five times before you actually get to the, to the what I call now the hidden motivations so when you ask why the first time, why am I uncomfortable with what he said? Oh, well, it's because um, 
you know, that's not in the Bible or whatever silly answer we've been conditioned to, uh, to give. That's not the real reason why. That's the reason you've been conditioned to give. Then you ask, well, why, why does it bother me that if it, if it really is not in the Bible, why does it bother me that it's not in the Bible? Like, what is the problem there? And then continue to ask why enough to where you get to the, to the root of why does this bother me, you know? Um, and learning all of that helped me decolonize just because I was getting to me, to myself. And the decolonizing is, the decolonizing is personal work to divest from systems of oppression. The first place you have to divest from systems of oppression is the oppression that they cause you. We are all being oppressed by the system. We, we all are. People think that only the marginalized are. The marginalized are the ones that are getting the brunt of it, that are getting the absolute worst of it. Um, the ones that we are stepping on so that we can survive our own oppression. Um, that's exactly what is happening. But we're all being oppressed. The ones that are the marginalized are just the ones that are beneath us and we're using them to survive. So how can I divest to get off their neck get off their backs and free myself too? Uh, and that comes with a lot of questioning of sitting down and becoming what, you know, a lot of the Eastern um, belief systems call awareness and just learning to become aware and not letting anymore your brain um, do whatever it wants and, you know, take whatever action it wants to take and yeah. uh, no, no more reactionary life anymore but now you are aware and you're aware that you're upset or you're aware that you're uncomfortable and this is important especially with parenting and marriage or relationships like uh close relationships because i no longer react to my children i no longer react to my husband in this house we we talk a lot about breathing so we take 90 seconds to breathe uh, an emotion takes 90 seconds to go through your body chemically um, so really, if you're feeling anger, in 90 seconds, you could be calm if you are able to tap into your brain long enough to say, breathe, breathe, <laughs> breathe. So it, so the emotion moves through your body chemically, and you're able to respond with your brain because your brain shuts down. So your prefrontal cortex uh, is different when you are afraid or angry or whatever, and it shuts down your nervous system. So if you're able to recognize I am in fight flight mode, so I will not react, but I'm going to breathe so that I can move to my parasympathetic nervous system. I, there is a lot that I have to explain <laughs> to be able to answer. That's this. okay. But um, so you have the two nervous systems, the sympathetic shuts down your system and you cannot heal. You cannot respond. Your brain shuts down in a way too. And everything is defend, protect, um, and you are, if you're able to breathe for 90 seconds and pull your brain out of that uh, and pull your entire body out of that, go back to the parasympathetic nervous system, which is the system that works when you're healing, when you're digesting food, um, your brain now can think clearly. If you're able to move your body there, then you're able to think more clearly. Uh, but that is, uh, it takes awareness. It takes, it's a process. It takes a learning, learning yourself, learning who you are and what are your triggers and what pushes me into the sympathetic fight or flight mode. And when I am in that mode, what are the things that I'm going to set in place? So what I do is I write, I journal. Uh, my husband has to take a walk. The, the man cannot even like, if he is still around humans, he will keep talking and keep going back. Cause the reason with, emotions not being just 90 seconds in your brain is because you relive the thing that caused the emotion in your brain. So your body sends all the chemical and all the, um, like your neurons fire everything up again. 
So what was 90 seconds become 30 years for some people of being angry about the same thing. All this is happening in your brain. The people didn't, whatever happened, didn't happen 20 times. It happened the one time, but you are reliving it in your brain. So you are, you are not allowing yourself to heal from it. Yep. Um, so the goal, that's why forgiveness is not required for healing. You don't have to forgive. Um, you know, that's, we teach that you do, you don't, you need to learn what is happening inside of me and how can I actually stop relieving this so that I can say, this is why it harmed me. This is why it hurts. This is why I'm bothered. This is why I'm uncomfortable. This is why I don't like it. This is why, I'm, what are the emotions that you're feeling? This is why I'm, I'm, a, I'm afraid. Yeah. Most of the time when I get upset with my kids, I realize that it, what's underneath it is fear. I'm afraid you might get hurt. I'm afraid something might happen to you. And instead of voicing that to them and saying, well, the reason that I don't want you to do this or, you know, that I, I'm, I'm uncomfortable with this is because I'm afraid, we can act on our fear and say, no, you're not allowed to that. And it's because I said what I said. And what that does is destroy a relationship with our children, destroy a relationship because we don't have awareness. So decolonizing begins with awareness. Yeah. Sorry, you're saying that and I'm just, you were talking about the almost essentially just always having the answer and everything and how colonization works even it, it is such a natural part of us because of what we've been ingrained with. Um, yeah. yeah. So please continue. No. And the more um, privilege you have in society, the more privileged your identity, the more that you are prone to saying, I have, I don't have to be aware. I, you know, I'm, I'm good. I have the answers. I'm good. I'm, I'm a genius because I am uh, not because you have, because you've been conditioned that way by the system. You've been conditioned to believe that by the system. The more, that's why marginalized people are, it's a lot easier for them to become, to become aware. It's a lot easier for margin. The more marginalized you are, the easier it is to come to awareness. Oh yeah. Because I mean, you have been conditioned by the system to believe you don't know anything. Sure. I mean, I, the amount of things that I've, I've failed up in just because I'm a white cis hetero man is remarkable, right. but not remarkable because of how, how society has been conditioned. Yeah. That's why to me, when I see a, you know, trans black woman existing freely, expanding and speaking her mind, I know how much work she's had to do. Because she has not only had to do the work that a white cis hetero man has had to do to become aware, she also has had to fight the conditioning of the system that tells her she's never good enough. So that's why when, when we say trust, you know, trust transgender black women, it's because the amount of work that has had to be done internally to become whole is... A white cis hetero will never understand that. You know, I will never understand that. And I have had to do more work than a white cis hetero man. Yeah. Um, but even I won't understand it because my oppression and my privilege are different. So awareness is one of the first steps? Yeah. Um, awareness to me is the first step. Um, that's why I was quiet for two years. I didn't, I mean, after I left the church, I was quiet for about three years. So it was three years of just sitting down and being quiet with myself, becoming aware of who I am, of what I, what it was that I really believed, not anymore what I've been told to believe, but what is it that I believe? Why do I believe that? Does it even serve me? Do I want to believe that anymore? And where I, and that's a part of the construction that is married to the colonizing work, the being able to say, I get to ask all the questions, you know, being able to feel safe enough 
if, if you only feel safe with yourself and you don't get to share your answers with anybody, that's fine. But at least being able to know them yourself, like this is where I'm landing here. Um, and then after that, it's leaning into that, learning to lean into, I, I do believe, I really truly believe, truly believe that we all know deep within us, we all know what is best for us, what we ought to do, uh, where we should move, you know, in what direction. Um, but we don't, like the vast majority of people don't feel safe enough to lean into that. Um, so if you are not aware and comfortable with yourself, that's why belonging to yourself first is the most important thing. You are not going to feel safe enough ever to be able to say, what is it that I want? And how do I move in that direction? Whatever the cost, you know, like if it costs me my job, then it costs me my job. But it, and I understand that's privilege speaking too. Some people can't say that. Um, but for me, that happened a lot inside of my marriage. You know, after I did all of this work, after I spent some time alone, I realized I had gotten married because I was, I was conditioned by the, my, my upbringing and Christianity and my life. Um, to first, I was assumed a heterosexual. So I was conditioned to find a man. Um, and then I moved to the U.S. and I was conditioned to find a white man. And none of this was conscious. All of this was con uh, unconscious. And then a, a white man that was called to be a pastor, that was, you know, going to do ministry, that was like the perfect catch for a Christian girl. And so I married this guy. And he's a good guy. He's a nice guy. But I didn't marry him because I really wanted to. Um, you know, I, I felt like I did. I felt like I, at the time. But looking back and getting to know myself, I realized that a lot of the deep motivations there were conditioning. I was just conditioned. I wasn't even, um, it wasn't even allowed of me to ask if this was okay. I, you know, our first kind of like the first kind of date we had was arranged by our pastors in a way um, because he was the perfect guy. Like he, Joe and Caleb would be just perfect together. And everybody said that to both of us. So we did. Um, so part of the, became, I became safe in myself. I became more aware. Um, now I was asking, do I even want to be married? Because I don't have to be married to him. I don't have to. And we had three kids at the time. I was like, I don't have to be married. And I know we have three kids and the logistics of all of that, but I don't have to. There is nothing that I have to do. I don't owe anything to anybody, not my children, not my husband. I don't know any, like, I don't have to. Um, so ask, like, giving myself permission to even go that far. Do I want to continue to be a pastor? Do I want to continue to do this work? Um, do I want to do something else? And some of it I had to do because I need to pay the bills. But some of it also was, no, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to... My husband, for instance, he doesn't like the whole being a, a church, like an organized church. So inside of the living room, he doesn't he's there and he talks and he's involved and he, but he likes his being with people. So I asked him like, how involved do you want to be in this? How, what do you want to do? And he felt safe enough to say, I don't want to be involved. Like, I don't want to do video. We used to do videos together. And he said, I don't want to do videos with you. I don't want to be um, like, you are the one that likes to teach. I don't, I don't want to teach. I don't like to teach, but we had both been conditioned that we had to do this together. And we had both been conditioned that I had to follow his lead. And he was like, but I don't want you to follow my lead. I don't have a lead also. Like, this is not my lane and I don't want to do it. And so after you become aware, then it becomes easier to be able to say, 
these are the things that I want to do and these are the things that I don't want to do and leaning into those becomes easier. The problem is some people start leaning into things they don't want to do or they do want to do before they become aware. So the motivation for wanting to do them or not wanting to do them is not the right motivation. It continues to be conditioning and oppression and insecurities and trauma. Um, so you think like, well, a lot of people, I've noticed that a lot in the deconstructed world. So people deconstruct and they go like, well, now I don't want to do all of these things, but they haven't gone through the journey of getting to know themselves. So now this is just like, I don't want to do them because I was told I had to, uh, but not because this is something that I really don't want to do. And there is a healing in that too, in just being able to say, I don't want to do them because I've been told my whole life, but it's important to move past that and say, what is behind that? You know, what are the hidden motivations? What are, what is going on underneath the surface? And am I just doing that because I, I need to be rebellious, which is safe and fine and fair, but you have to move past it. They, no, I'm not doing it because I need to be rebellious now. I'm doing it because this is who I am and I need to be faithful to who I am. So it's kind of moving through becoming aware and then doing things that you really want to do because you're becoming aware and then leaning into those. And that now is truly a journey because you're being led by the wisdom within you're not being led by your conditioning and your insecurities yeah. and of course a lot of like underneath all of that or be, alongside all of that was reading a ridiculous amount for some people is um therapy therapy wasn't great for me i didn't it didn't work but i did work with a um a decolonized trauma coach. She's also a therapist, but she doesn't work as a therapist anymore, but it's a decolonized trauma coach okay. that, you know, was talking about colonization. I needed someone that could talk to me through colonization. Um, so ed education was alongside all of that too. So I was reading a lot, learning a lot, meeting with people a lot, leaning in a lot, um, paying a lot of patron, like becoming patron of a lot of these women that were saying things that I needed to hear. Yeah. Um, so it, it kind of goes like, you know, and you know what you need as you start listening to yourself. You, I knew what I needed. Um, I knew who I needed to listen to and I knew where I needed to go, the books that I wanted to read. Um, so but, yeah, I, for me, that's why awareness is so important. No, great. I think that that's a great place to wrap up. Joe, thank you so much for coming on and, and taking time out of your busy morning to, to talk with me and, um, we'll have your Patreon and all the other links where you can find um, Joe in, in the show notes. So check that out. Um, is there anything you want to promote coming up? No, um, I, no, because it's not finalized yet. <laughs> so okay. I'm, yeah, I want to find I'm, I'm working on some projects and I'm excited about them, but, um, but it's not finalized yet. So I don't think I'm allowed to talk about it quite yet. Okie dokie. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Um, my name is George. I, I'm your co-host on Avenger Pros. <laughs> and you can find us uh, if you have any questions, um, comments, concerns, if you disagree, uh, shoot us an email, avengerbros at gmail.com or on Patreon, Twitter, Instagram at Bros. Joe, again, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, hope you have a great week and everybody listening, have a great week as well. Thank you. Thank you so much.